You're listening to Fight in Progress. With your hosts and stress coaches, founder of Under the Shield, Susan Simmons, and TomTheBomb.com. Fight in Progress grapples with the internal and external struggles in the daily lives of our men and women in law enforcement, the armed forces, and first responders. Tackling the tough topics and supporting those who support us. We hear you, and we're here for you. Welcome back to Under the Shield Presents Fight in Progress <laughs> with your host, Susan Simmons, and our my co-host here. You know, we got to get over the TomTheBomb.com probably now that you're retired. Right. But what was the nickname I said I was going to call you? It came up in the stress coach certification. Somebody came oh, up don't. with one, but I don't know. Who well, knows? Yeah, his name will change every week if, it's, <laughs> if I have my say-so. And uh, we're excited to be announcing and running this podcast for the last time yes. out of the office in my home. Yes. And we will be moving today to the Chris Ferrara Podcast Studio. And it'll be set up all the time. Full time. Yeah, none uh, of this pull it in and out of the closet yeah. and all of that good stuff. So we're excited today. It's a big day at Under the Shield to actually be moving up to Mesa, uh, Arizona, to our office, new offices there, as long as the lawyers got out. We're going to have a problem. Mesa PD, be on standby. There you go. Because if they haven't moved out like promised. We're evicting them. Yeah, we're putting stuff out the parking lot. <laughs> and they're on their own. But anyway, we have a really exciting guest today. We sure do. And you kind of initiated this, so. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was, I was just like channel surfing, you know, streaming. Like men do, clicking, right. no was, brain activity. I was in my nothing Mark, box. Yeah, as Mark right. Gunger says, yes. Um, And I ran across the movie Break Every Chain, and I thought, oh. Thought it was going to be like Break Bad, Breaking Bad or well, something. Well, I, I wasn't sure, <laughs> but, you know, I... I knew it was about an officer, so I thought, oh, okay, let's watch this and see what it's like. And he broke his motorcycle and bicycle chain, is what you <laughs> thought it was going to be. <laughs> he would have had to been like on an old KZ-1000 well, to break you, the chain. Well, but, you never you know. know. You right, never know. It. Yeah. So, yeah, so I started watching the movie and got enthralled in it, and it was a great movie. Uh, and then and my wife was watching it with me, and then she's like, she was doing some research, and she's like, uh, he has a book out. So I was like, well, let's get the book then. And so we read the book. Um, the book is I liked better only because it goes into more depth and it's more personal. Well, that's usually the way right. it is. The book's usually better than the movies. Right. But, but it was it was very good. So our, our guest today is Jonathan Hickory. The man. That's right. From the book and the movie. <laughs> we have a real superstar with us that's today. Right. <laughs> so welcome, Jonathan. How are you doing today? Hey guys, good morning. Uh, how are you all? Good. Yeah, he's, he's questioning his decision to be on here now. That's right. <laughs> I, I hope he didn't listen to any other podcasts because he'd have probably called in sick or something, like permanently. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm grateful to be on with you guys. Well, we're honored to have you here. Well, it's funny because we're doing this over Zoom so we can see Jonathan on his webcam and he's sitting outside drinking coffee or it looks like coffee maybe. Um, but the fact is he's sitting outside yes. and Susan and I are like, wow, it'd be yeah. nice to sit outside if the weather was nice here in Arizona. Yeah, you know, 115 is just not exactly <laughs> the ideal time to sit outdoors no. here, but that's okay. We get eight, nine months a year that are exactly. really nice. And yeah. So any of the listeners, if you hear some birds chirping or cicadas singing in the background, yeah, it's Jonathan that, showing off and right. making us feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> and and it now it's hot here too though i mean yeah you get the humidity as bad as arizona yeah but you get the humidity and right and you know i, I laugh at the people out here man it hits 30 percent humidity and they start whining <laughs> and i'm like oh come back to alabama with me and we'll talk about some real humidity well when yeah. i was back there what a couple months summer, ago, yeah, and you, I was like, "Man, this humidity—it sucks back here." And it, it was nothing. And you weren't even I in know. the in the worst of it, no. Yep. But now, thank heavens, it's Friday and not a Monday, and I'm having to sit here with two motor people. Jeez, <laughs> good heavens! You got your killer boots on. <laughs> you know, you know how Marines yes. once a Marine, always a Marine. Uh huh. It's the same mentality as a motor. Once I a know. motor, always a motor. I know something draws yeah. y'all into that. <laughs> Whatever. No, I'm not even wearing shoes at all. I'm not even socks. <laughs> so tell us about you, Jonathan. How'd you get started uh, so, in law enforcement? Yeah. Well, first, where'd you grow up at? And 
What was your childhood? Uh, you know, like? so, so that's uh, I've been a police officer for 19 years, uh, in, all here in, in Virginia. Um, and uh, how did I get into it? Well, we got to go back further to that, <laughs> further to the childhood. <laughs> So I actually grew up in Massachusetts and New England. When I was a kid, I always enjoyed creative writing. So uh, I think it was very therapeutic for me to write the book. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Facing a lot of stuff uh, the way that I really wanted to in my mind. Sure. I was able to write it out. But uh, there were just some stuff, I guess, that, uh, you know, in the that I had put in there that, you know, my mom was like, well, where are you going with this? And or <laughs> word choice, sentence structure, sure. things like that. So she's been always been probably my number one fan. Um, and she gives copies of the books out to people all the time. You know, I, I'll sign them and, and she'll give them out to people. So, no, she's very much supportive of it. Um, and did she remember I'm very things that you didn't? Was she able to plug yeah. some things in maybe that you had kind of forgotten? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Excuse me. I, I absolutely. I think that there were a lot of things that um, she had to maybe correct me on and there might have been a few arguments about it you know because <laughs> we remember things differently right. especially when you're a kid you know exactly. you, you might remember something happening a certain way and you're like no this is the real way it happened sure so you know yeah absolutely that happened but um no i'm very thankful for her i'm very thankful for her grace for her guidance and for her faith i mean during the whole you know, she's never wavered in her faith, even after falling, you know, after her husband passing away yeah. um, with, with four kids in her care. So, yeah. Cool. So when was the first time you realized you wanted to be a cop? Uh, so I was uh, kind of so after I lost my father, I it dealt with a lot of depression, a lot of self-image issues. Bullies had a field day with me. Mm. Um, and so. I, uh, I didn't have a lot of friends uh, that were close, but the ones that I did, we were all a bunch of nerds and <laughs> we were into computers and stuff like that. I mean, when you don't have a lot of friends, you know, the computer becomes your friend. Sure. So um, I was into, you know, uh, games and stuff like that. And I, I could tear down a computer, put it back together again. So I started getting into computer work <laughs> earlier in life, uh, you know, as far as my career. And I thought that's where I was headed. And if that were true, then I'd have a lot nicer house sitting behind me. <laughs> I was going to say, we got one of those. Okay. <laughs> so um, in uh, after the 9-11 terror attacks, mm -hmm. uh, I was working for a company that um, shortly thereafter went bankrupt. They went Chapter 11 bankruptcy, uh, like so many dot-coms did back then yeah. uh, after 9-11. It was just a bad time to be in technology. Uh, the market was saturated with, with computer technology uh, people, and the jobs weren't there. And so I, I figured that um, I, I had a strong interest in law enforcement, and I felt a calling towards it. I felt like I really, especially after 9-11, I really wanted to serve my country and serve, serve my community. And, and so that's when I started getting interested in becoming a police officer. Nice. And you would have been how old at that point? Um, the first time that I went out for the uh, for the test, uh, I was 22 years old, and uh, there were over 100, easily over 100 people, um, if not 200 people, that had showed up for the test. Mm -hmm. It was like in a gymnasium yep. of a high school. And would you have just, uh, just a few remember. slots open? There yeah, were, yeah, right, exactly. Just a few slots and the competition. It's not like it is today. Right. Where, <laughs> oh, I know. You know, there's like a hundred jobs open and like five, five people show up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's so different. It's amazing. But um, so the first time that I applied, I actually did not get hired and, and it was okay. I was still pretty young um, right. and immature in some ways. So uh, this uh, about a year later, I tried again. And I was able to uh, to get on. I was 23 when I started the academy. Yeah, Tom and I were teaching. It's been six months ago, yeah. I guess now. And, you know, Phoenix here is the fifth largest department in the country. And in their <laughs> new recruit class, we had five. <laughs> Literally, wow, that's five. unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, and they're we about. We were like, what? Is where's going everybody? On? Where's everybody? <laughs> uh, although I question everybody that wants to go into this field every day. Um, Given the environment, thank God for the ones that do. But yeah, it, that was crazy because I I don't think I'd ever taught a class there with 
I think when it hit like 21, we were going, whoa, yeah. what's this? Well, and in 1994, when I went to that same academy, we had between 45 and 50 officers start the academy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's a nationwide ep epidemic. It Absolutely. Is. Everywhere yeah. you go. And the public, I don't think, realizes that till it hits home and, you know, you got a felony in progress and you got a seven minute, 10 minute delay for yeah. somebody to get there. And then they're like, whoa. Um, yeah, it's kind of sad. But I tell you, that's why we work so hard to try to make sure we can keep the ones we have healthy and staying in the industry and not, you know, we, Tom and I saw somebody not too long ago with the, probably the worst burnout I think I've ever right. looked at physically looking at him. Yeah. You could just see it all over his face. He wanted to laugh when we joked and he couldn't even muster <laughs> the energy to laugh. I mean, he barely could crack a smile. Yeah, it was and, crazy. But we're making progress there and, um, but that's, to me, why it's so important that there's this push for mental wellness. I'm not sure we're coming at it from the right angle always. But, um, you know, I think that's something that your movie could certainly, you know, we certainly are going to be talking about it with your permission and our trainings and stuff. And actually, I'd love to, have you, love to have you come out. You know, we're trying to work something with, do you know who Mark Gunger is? I've heard his name. Okay, you got you to gotta watch his video. I'm giving you homework here, okay? <laughs> and uh, it's on YouTube, but if you'll look up um, A Tale of Two Brains, he talks about the woman's brain versus the man's brain. It's crazy spot on, too. Yes, and I, I got to have dinner with him and his wife recently, and he uh, gave me one, one of his books, his Laugh Your Way Through Marriage or something like that, and the other one, he did a two-part series um, one is treat him like a dog, and the other one is treat her like a truck, because <laughs> men treat their truck so good and women treat their dogs so good. <laughs> oh, I like it. I like it. That's and, uh, great. No, that's wonderful. Yeah, we're hoping to do a, a, a kind of a workshop, I guess, weekend type thing with him and his wife. And, you know, Jonathan, and I don't know if your wife travels and teaches or speaks with you, but, boy, y'all would be a tremendous yeah. addition to something like that if you're something you'd be interested in yeah we should talk about that we have three kids so that's the only thing <laughs> i hear you you know yeah yeah well but no i mean we should talk about it uh some more for sure i i, I would definitely be interested at least right. i got him pinned down saying he'd be interested that's right <laughs> there's a reason i asked that on here <laughs> it's recorded yeah, you heard it here first right? <laughs> exactly and now i got it and i'll play it back <laughs> so, um, so tell us about the really the whole concept of the the movie, the book, and why you wanted to do it and thought it was so important? Um, so when I became a police officer, I, I was starting to, I felt like, a, you know, after a very uh, hard struggle in my teenage years with depression uh, and, and self-image issues and um, just all sorts of, in uh, uh, the anger, uh, you know, that, that was always welling inside of me, uh, I started like I was starting to do a little bit better, you know, when I became a cop and I also got married mm -hmm. uh, just about, mm, I think it was about two months out of field training. So after I got out of, out of FTO, I got married two months later and I am like, you know, everything's going great. Like I've got this <laughs> brand new career as a police officer. I've got this amazing beautiful wife uh who's not like screwed up <laughs> you know? so, so that's always good right uh, there's a so, measurement <laughs> yes. she's definitely been a rock for you that's yes, for sure she has. Yeah. well but prior to her you know i had some pretty broken relationships and um i think i was always trying to fix uh you know the broken in others and so that that's not a healthy uh thing when you're broken yourself you know um, did but, you get in trouble uh, as a teenager a lot? You're talking about the anger. Did it come mm -hmm. out in your teenage years? Did you get in trouble with the police? Have any, that kind of uh, stuff? Well, uh, let's just say I, I was lucky that I didn't get in trouble a lot more. There were some reckless driving, um, incidents and it mainly came out in my driving, I would say, okay. uh, you know, road rage and just acting foolish and driving recklessly. Uh, but I just, I would say I just didn't get caught a lot of the mm -hmm. times. Um, but yeah, I did have to go to court at one point for a reckless driving incident. Okay. Um, so absolutely it was coming out and showing it's, it's, I write about that in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you may remember that time right. talking about some of the reckless stuff that I did. And, um, so yeah, absolutely. It was a problem in my life. 
but I, when I got married and became an officer, I knew I had to behave and I knew, you know, I had to grow up a little bit in that way. But, uh, but my anger was coming out in other ways, like the way I talked to people, mm-hmm. you know, I would talk down to people and I would talk, uh, I would, I would, you know, allow the tone in my voice to take over and things like that. So I still battled it, but I really, for the first time I was like, Oh, okay. Like I'm doing great. And you know, up to that point, I always felt like everybody else was thriving and I was always drowning. I always felt like I was drowning. My life was screwed up. My life was broken because of my dad, my father died and, you know, I just wasn't whole anymore. Mm -hmm. So I started feeling a little bit better about my life and where it was going. And uh, the first couple of years in law enforcement are awesome. It's like the, (laughs) the, you know, everything's awesome. Oh, yeah. you know, Kid like, in a candy got, store. Exactly. Yeah. The adrenaline rushes. Like, got and, that badge, right. that power, that gun. Yep, I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even the, the crappy calls, you don't mind because everything's just awesome. You that's know? right. I can't um, believe like I, get I get paid to, to do this job. That's right. I can't believe I get paid to do this. And so we all go through that and it lasts a couple of years and then it starts to wear off. And right. um, I'd say that uh, at the you know two to three year mark, something like that, I was heavy hitter in DUI enforcement. Um, you know, I was stopping everything that moved and um, very proactive police officer. And uh, just all the stuff that, that we see was starting to get to me and I didn't know how to cope with it. Yeah. Uh, and I was, I, I was identifying as police officer. You know, yes. that was mm-hmm. my only identity. Yep. Right. I deleted all my friends that yeah. I had prior because they just didn't get it you know i didn't talk to anybody except other cops i didn't hang out with anybody except off duty except other cops you know my whole life my (laughs) whole identity was law enforcement and you see that which is a bad thing yeah Yeah. and you see that all the time you know in this career field yes yes absolutely it's very common uh it's hard not to do especially as a young person kind of get ate up with it um (laughs) and so not, you know, they weren't talking about mental health at all uh, back then. I do believe I got the Kevin Gill Martin book mm-hmm. short, you know, early on in my career, and I threw it in the garbage. I was like, I don't need this. <laughs> well, I don't need this. Well, and honestly, we we believe that's a, a great book for families because it really, Kevin does a great job in talking about why y'all do what you do, mm-hmm. but it's not really a how-to book. It's right. not it how is a good book. to it come is a good off resource. of these. Yes. And uh, I really like it for for spouses, especially, right? Especially early in the career to start knowing what to look for, that kind well, of. Well, I think that's really all there was back then, too. Right. I yes. mean, yeah. it's still a prominent bestseller in the law enforcement community, but um, and it's a wonderful book. But I think that it's nice that we have some options now. You know, yes, yeah. Uh, as far as other people who are writing books for law enforcement, um, but. You know, I didn't th- think even if somebody came to me and said, like, you need to read this, I would have been like, no, I don't. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> It'll never happen to I me. I got this. Yeah. That's, that's right. That's sure. right. And, uh, you know, you look at other people that might be struggling. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all heard of those people, you know, the guy with the with the, the therapy dog or something mm-hmm. like that. And right. they get made fun of. Yep. And yeah. it it's just like if you don't if you haven't walked in those shoes, if you haven't fought that battle then you shouldn't ridicule those right. who are struggling because you just, you have no idea what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And um, I understand that now, but sure. I didn't, I didn't understand. I was one of the scoffers, you know? Um, so I feel shame for that, but uh, God's opened my eyes for, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started to see this stuff, you know, the death, the abuse, the um, dysfunction, um, the death of infants, the suicides, homicides, all the stuff we see, the violent car crashes, and uh children killed and things like that and uh to cope with it i you know i turned to alcohol you know i tried to talk to another senior officer at one point about the flashbacks the nightmares the recurring images the bit you know how it was affecting me and i got laughed at and i got told that you know you just gotta let it roll off your back Uh, yeah exactly Exactly. And so I felt like just asking help for help or kind of reaching out and kind of feeling the water, uh, put my toe in the water a little bit for help. Um, I was immediately shunned mm-hmm. and that made me feel ashamed. It, you know, it almost affirmed what I was already thinking that right. I was weak and somehow broken and somehow different than everyone else in this profession. Cause I just couldn't hack it. Sure. Uh, so I, 
learned in that moment that I just better be quiet and shut up about it and never mention it again. Um, so I continued to turn to alcohol because it made me feel disconnected uh, from the pain, uh, not only the pain of what I was seeing in law enforcement, but also all the way back to my father. Um, you know, little things like the Lion King, you guys seen the Lion King, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The animated film, you know, that movie, uh, it has a very sad part in it, right? Where the father dies, right. um, for bonus points, Tom, what's the, what's the father's name in the Lion King? Uh, I'm not, you're not going to get it. You won't get it from me. Yeah. I'm 63. Oh, come on. I got dementia. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I can't think of his name. Okay. My All kids right, are so. 32 and 35. Come on now. Give me a break here. <laughs> All right. So everybody listening to the podcast right now is like, it's Mufasa. Yeah, it's Mufasa. Mufasa. Yeah, that's it's right. Mufasa. And Simba's the, the yep. son. Right. So when Mufasa, James Earl Jones' character, uh, passes away, um, it's very sad moment in the movie and, uh, and they kind of, you know, they, they, they don't just end it there. They continue to show how it affects the, the young lion mm -hmm. cub. And, um, but that movie and those moments would really affect me, really upset me to the point that sometimes I would cry. Yeah. And I guess that's normal if you're 12 or 13 years old, but I mean, when you're 30 years old and it still affects you that way that's probably a sign that you have some unresolved stuff. Right. But know, at the time you though, to... you're not seeing that. You don't, no, you don't understand that. I, I definitely can not. relate to that. Yeah. And you know, there's that stigma, right? Not only in law enforcement, but just men in general, exactly. you know, we're tough and we don't need to get help. Right. So, we can do this all our own. Well, that's we, right. Well, uh, you are the problem solvers. I mean, that's your whole job description. That's right. Yep. You're exactly right. I actually, I I've said that before myself, you know, we're the fixers. We can fix any problem yep. in an hour or less, you yep. know, sometimes two, depending on the medical examiner, right? <laughs> right? We can, we can fix a problem, you know, just give it, you know, tell us what the problem is and we can fix it, right. but yep. we can't fix ourselves and we want to fix ourselves, right. you know? Um, so, you know, life continued for me and my, I became, this just uh, cynical, bitter person. The alcoholism kept getting worse. I couldn't kick it. Uh, we had our first, my wife and I had our first daughter um, in 2009. And I'm like, well, I'm going to be a great dad because my dad passed away. And um, I'm going to, you know, kick this alcohol thing because, you know, it's a, I, I was starting to realize, even though I was still in denial about being an alcoholic, I was, um, you know, justifying it. And mm -hmm. I was still in denial about, you know, that it was a problem in my life. So well, because you're in an environment daughter, though, where everybody's drinking for the most part. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely. mean, we can normalize ourselves. I, I, I had an officer brought to me one time, people concerned about his drinking. And I said something to him about it. And he looked at me in horror. And I thought they've brought me a teetotaler. And this <laughs> is just a joke. And he looked at me, he said, Susan, I'm not drinking, but a case of beer a night. I almost fell off the chair. He goes, I got friends drinking two and three times that. So in this population, right. it's easy to justify the alcohol because right. you can find somebody drinking way more than you are. So you must be okay. Yeah. That's right. Oh, I did that a lot. And, you know, there were conversations daily, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with other officers about how they couldn't wait to get home and drink and, you know, that this was cutting into their drinking time yeah. and you know, stuff like that. This overtime's got to stop. <laughs> it was is very much normalized yeah. and still is very normalized yes. in the culture, you know. Yep. Um, even in leadership positions, yes. uh, people talk about it. So um, I thought it was normal. I thought it was okay. And I'm like, well, that's just how we deal. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's just how it is in this job. And, you know, as long as it, I can still get to work on time yep. and do my job, then what's the big deal, right? Yep. Um, so, but it got to the point where if I didn't drink every day, uh, you know, then uh, I would have withdrawals, uh, physical withdrawals. I could feel things crawling on me and I would, uh, I hid it from my, from my wife. I hid my drinking. So she'd only see a beer or two in the trash can, but she didn't know about the liquor bottle or the entire bottle of wine that I had also drank. Um, and so that's a, you know, if you're hiding it, obviously that's a, that's some, a sign that you're ashamed of it. Yes. Right. So that's how you kind of know that, you know, it's a problem, but, um, 
you know, it kept getting worse and worse. And, um, it, it was destroying my family life. Uh, you know, the, the, not only the, the alcohol, but also the, the not dealing with the stress and not dealing with the, the trauma. Um, and so we finally get to the point where my wife and I were expecting our second child. And at this point, we're just kind of like roommates living together. I don't know mm -hmm. even how the, like, but, you know, I also thought like maybe bringing a child into this world was a bad idea. Um, you know, I, I didn't think about like abortion or anything. Like I've never believed in that, but I was like, how could I, we bring in a child into this world, another child, this broken, fallen, screwed up, dark, right. you know, everyone is evil. Everyone is horrible. Sure. There are no good people. That's where the, where I was in my mind. Um, and so I finally started coming around to the idea and I built the crib and I had felt the baby kick and at about five months into the pregnancy, you know, my wife had had some complications and she'd been placed on mandatory bed rest for 10 days and it just kept getting worse. And uh, I was in denial about it. I just kept drinking more heavily, trying to escape reality. Uh, and um, one Sunday afternoon in October uh, of 2013, um, our son, our firstborn son, uh, was born deceased in our home, in our master bathroom, uh, and uh, at uh, five months into the pregnancy. And so, like, I can talk about it now, but it absolutely destroyed me. Sure. Yeah. It absolutely wrecked me. I, can't I was already imagine. in a very... Go ahead, Tom. No, I can't even imagine that, you know, especially you're you're so excited about having, you know, the birth of your son coming up, and then what a devastating blow that must have been yeah i i mean i had started to come around to the idea i wasn't i was it was like a glimmer of hope in a very right. dark world first yeah. i saw it as a bad thing but i'm like okay well you know babies fix everything right of course <laughs> so, absolutely so they and they're wonderful and i love babies so much but um it was like when that happened it was i was carrying around all this heavy darkness with me already and when that happened, it was the heaviness that fell over me, a darkness that fell over me like I had never known before. Mm. And um, suddenly uh, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know how to handle it. And of course, I'm not going to go get any kind of help for it because I don't need to do that. Right. Because right. um, I've got it together. Right. You know. <laughs> and so instead of getting help, um, I drank more. I uh, tried to do things uh, on my own to fix it. This heavy pain and darkness and screwed up twisted thoughts i started to associate my wife with the death of the child um that's post-traumatic stress brain yeah, you know absolutely. like uh so uh, i didn't want to be around my wife i couldn't look her in the eye i, I we, we rarely spoke and for about 18 months after the death of my son um who we named christian um it was like self-destruct uh, I wouldn't, I would do reckless things at work, like, uh, you know, any disorder with a knife or a gun or whatever, like I would be, I'd be there, whether there was another officer on the way or not, I didn't care if I lived or died. Um, and yeah, there was re reckless behavior in my marriage, there was infidelity affairs. Um, just, I didn't care who I hurt. I didn't care, uh, what happened to me. And I didn't care like about anything but trying to feel better. Yep. Uh, and it was so selfish and stupid looking back, but I was in the darkest place I'd ever known and, and I just wanted to die. So um, here's an example, just a real quick example of mm -hmm. uh, where I was mm -hmm. as a person. So my wife was a, a, a teacher. She still teaches uh, part-time now, but she was a teacher uh, full-time in the public school system. And so she was, she's not a sugar mama. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, I say that because she had saved up over $5,000 uh, today it would probably be like $10,000, but for us to all go to Disney world for like a week or seven days or something like that. And cause my daughter was five years old mm -hmm. and she was in full on princess mode. There yeah. you go. This is probably about 16, 17 months after the death of our son. Okay. So I was still in a huge, very dark place, hadn't gotten any help, still drinking very heavily. But she had this amazing Disney World trip planned for us. I had taken the time off from work. Um, we were going to stay in the animal 
lodge, wilderness, whatever. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm sorry. This is gonna... We get the picture. But, uh, let's just say there were giraffes outside the hotel room. Balcony. Okay. So, like, <laughs> you want to wake up and kiss a giraffe, you can do that. But, uh, uh, but like, it was coming down. We were getting ready to leave, and I'm like, I don't, I don't think I'm gonna go. And she's like like what yeah. <laughs> like, what are you talking about i you know and i said well you know i got a bunch of stuff to do at work and blah 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 you know just total bs and the truth was that i didn't want to go to disney world with my wife and my five-year-old child my five-year-old daughter who knew all the princesses by heart because i would rather drink yep. and because i was worried that i wouldn't be able to support my alcohol sure. uh habit mm. in a hotel room in disney world sure so that's just a glimpse of who I was at the time. And that's just a hard reality to look at. Yeah. But uh, it's sick. But uh, I fixed the problem by buying a bunch of alcohol, uh, putting it in my suitcase to the point where it clanked when I set it down. <laughs> and uh, and I and I brought it with me and I spent most of the vacation hung over, you know, um, wow. which, you know, luckily my five year old daughter didn't care. But you know, it just didn't help. Right. Sure. So we get back from vacation and um, I'm right in the IA office with my agency for the first time in my career. Wow. I'd been named officer of the year just prior to that. Uh, and I'm only saying that because that's what I was doing. I was chasing my job, chasing my career because it's the only thing I had left. Sure. Um, you know, everything out my personal life had fallen apart. And uh so I land myself in IA over the uh, the affairs uh, that I had mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. some conduct unbecoming of, of an officer. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you look at that discipline matrix, which I became very familiar with that policy <laughs> very quickly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it goes all the way to termination. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember them putting down the, the voice recorder on the table and only I was under investigation and couldn't talk about with anyone and turn in my... Um, cell phone and my department phone and my department laptop and all that and my passwords and um, just feel like I've they didn't take my badge and gun but I felt like I'd been stripped of some things and I was very scared for the first time in my life in in this IA office you know I'd gotten like rudeness complaints before but never like this Um, so they said I could go home early and I went home and my wife's not home my daughter's not home and the house is just so quiet Susan, it's so quiet. Yep. And um, I laid on the bed and I'm just in my mind, it's swirling. You know, you're, you're done. Yeah. Uh, you're you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your wife. You're going to lose your daughter because your wa- daughter's going to go with your wife when, when your wife finds out, finds out about all this mess. And, uh, you know, there's just no coming back. So there was a voice that I could hear very clearly. Mm-hmm. in my in my mind saying just just end it end your life you know just just this is the moment you know sure. where my the battle was raging for my soul um and you know tom i wrote about this in the book uh it's very much hollywooded in the movie as far as that that scene but <laughs> yeah. yeah i i uh i saw a vision of fire in that moment and it scared me i thought mm. that that meant that i was going to go straight to hell right um and so that's what sat me out of it because uh, you know the gun was right there, and right. you yeah. know, I was, but uh, I, it, it was like, okay, whoa, like if you do this, like there really is no coming back. Yeah, and, um, and, and also like other people will suffer, you know. Yes. So yeah. I think that 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 I was snapped out of it in that moment. But you know, most people that that do go through with the act mm-hmm. of taking their own life, you know, they're in a moment of just not. They're not thinking in the right, right mind, of course. Yeah. Well, and many so, of them, I think, because of the conflict at home, they start to think their families will be better off without them, that they're right. making them miserable. Right. And, you know, what we're seeing a lot of are officers who are planning their line of duty death because at least that way they can feel okay about their leaving their families financially sound because of the financial benefit of it. And right. You know, that that's the one that really breaks my heart is when they sit in here and they will tell us because we're not mandated reporters and we don't ever report anybody. We deal with it. But it's it's heartbreaking to hear them say they are planning their line of duty death. 
And this isn't about mental illness. This is about good people hurting really badly um, and not feeling safe turning for help because if they ask for help, they could lose their job and career anyway. So let's plan a way out where families can can financially um, be taken care of. And it's an honorable death to have a line of duty death. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, it's a, such a twisted way of thinking, yeah. you know. But but it like really in Jonathan's is. case, he's he's sitting there contemplating suicide, right? But yet he starts thinking about others that are going to be hurt. Yes. So it's not mental illness, just like not at all, right? It's just where do you turn? How do you turn? How to do get I fix? Oh, now, right. Yeah, where do I start yeah. now? Yeah, right. yeah. You feel just so hopeless, right. and you blame. I had nobody to blame but myself. Sure. Uh, but I also didn't know all that I know now. Right. About. <laughs> PTSD, which, you know, everybody knows that word, post-traumatic stress. I don't even like saying PTSD because so so many people overuse it. But, um, you know, what I know now about unresolved trauma and what I know now about, you know, um, what happens when you don't face these things and uh, about the destruction uh, of not only the trauma, but, you know, substance abuse and things like that. Um, I understand it better now, but when you're in the middle of the storm, man, all you can see, see yeah. is two feet in front of your face if you're walking. So, and we really I'm don't so see it as a disorder here. We believe it's an injury you can heal from. Um, I agree. And I agree. I think we make too many people victims when we tell them PTSD and it's something you're going to have to get treatment for the rest of your life. It's just not true. Um, That's true. That's true. I don't. I'm. I currently. I mean, I still go to a a, a Bible study with my church every other Saturday if I can get my butt out of bed, but uh, <laughs> sure. it's like early. It's, it's 830 in the morning, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but no, I'm not currently, I'm not, and not like I would go back if I, if I started having problems again, but sure. currently I don't have to see a counselor and right. I'm doing great. Like, but after, let me tell you how I got there. Right. So mm-hmm. after this moment of almost suicide, um, I, uh, I didn't know what to do. Like, I'm like, okay, well, I, I really don't know what to do. I can't talk to anybody. Can't talk to my wife about this. You know, she'll kill me. Sure. Um, and (laughs) can't talk to anybody in the department about it. Well, that's everybody else in my life. So now what? So I go to, uh, my commanding Lieutenant and, uh, this is not in the book, but I wrote, I did write an afterward. Um, and it is now in the book as well. Um, but I went to my commanding lieutenant, Lieutenant Mike Wagner. He's now a chief in Siler City, North Carolina. And uh, I went to my commanding lieutenant and I said, he knew about the investigation. He probably didn't know all the details at that point. But he said, uh, I said to him, I said, like, what do I do? I said, I feel like I could lose my job. Like, lieutenant, like, I don't know what to do. What do I do? And he saw this look of panic in my eyes, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I didn't say I need help. I didn't see say, please help me, uh, because that is not programmed into our code. Right. Um, and so he had probably 30,000 years of experience. And uh, <laughs> I mean, this guy is just one of those guys that's just, you just look at him, you, like, you know, he's been a cop forever. Yeah. Uh, but he's got a heart of gold, you know, like gruff exterior, heart of gold. And he, he looks at me and he says, are you hurting? And I'm looking back at him. Like, do you expect me to actually tell you the <laughs> truth about that? Like, what a <laughs> so I didn't say, <laughs> I know that's what he said. Uh, and, and so I, I'm like, ah, uh, and he says, step into my office. So he, he sh- pulls me into his office and he shuts the door. And, um, he's, he says, he continues on that path. Like, are you hurting? Like, do I have a troop who's hurting? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what to say. So he says, hang on just a minute. And he calls up our department police psychologist who we had only had for a short time, Mm -hmm. but we had a police psychologist on contract or whatever. And he got the guy on the phone. Mm -hmm. Um, and he said, I've got Jonathan in my office and, uh, he's going to come see you. He need, you know, he's hurting and he needs to come see you. And so he's like, yeah, send him, tell him to come on. You know, I've got appointments next week, whatever. So, uh, he said, have him call my office and we'll set it up. So he gets off the phone. He said, okay, go see, go see this guy. No, you know, I'm like, okay, all right. So now it's like all that, all that I need help. I didn't need to do it. (laughs) I didn't need to go 
seek help, I had been given orders from my commanding lieutenant to go get help, yep. to go see this guy. And so I did. I started to see the police psychologist, and I also started going to church. Uh, but the police psychologist, like, helped me to – he talked me off the edge. Mm -hmm. He started validating my, my feelings, my emotions almost immediately. And I saw him for about five months. Um, I started going to a, some group therapy, a men's group through church. Um, my wife and I ultimately had to face this stuff. Sure. Uh, we started going to a faith-based marriage counselor. Mm -hmm. uh, she didn't leave me. Uh, she had every right to leave me. Sure. Um, and she, over time, uh, and with over five and a half or about over five months of couples counseling with this uh, marriage counselor, uh, you know, she chose to forgive. Um, and like that, I had still had to forgive myself. Sure. That mm -hmm. took a long, long time too. Yep. Uh, but like this marriage counselor, the marriage counselor actually spent a lot of time um, on the stuff with my dad, you know, like mm -hmm. losing my father and how I felt about that, you know, and I thought that was really surprising to me because I thought that was done and I didn't need to face that. Of course. Uh, but I'd, I'd never faced it. And if you've seen the movie, if you've read the book, you know, the there's a scene uh, in, that we brought over into the movie from the book about the empty chair, you yep. know, talking right. to my father in the empty chair. Yep. And like when that when I did that, I was like, nope, I'm not doing that. That's stupid. Like, there's nobody in that chair. Yeah. I'm not like five years old. I've tried five. that a few times myself. And yeah, it's called Gestalt therapy. And uh, yeah, y'all don't take okay. to that real well. Um, we actually modified it a little bit, but go ahead. Well, I didn't. And my wife was sitting there and she's like, look, you know, you need to fix you before we can fix our marriage. So like, mm -hmm. you better, you know, do it. And so I'm like, okay, fine. Like I'll do it. And, uh, this is dumb, by the way, if I didn't already say this is dumb, this is dumb. But I started, I looked at this empty chair and I started seeing, like, imagining that my father was sitting in this chair and I could finally tell him all the things I wanted to tell him that I never got to tell him. Sure. I, you know, I could finally tell him how much I loved him and how much I missed him and how I wish he could see me graduate from the academy and see me get married and, you know, all the things that I'm getting emotional right now just talking about. So, sure. Um, you know, it, it had such power. Uh, it was so therapeutic and I was crying and I'm like, what happened just now? Like, <laughs> it, I did not expect that to be helpful at all. Like, so I was so glad that I did do that, you know? Mm -hmm. So tell you what, if you're in therapy, if you're talking to a counselor and they suggest an exercise, give it a shot. Don't right. be a, you know, a, a hard butt about it. You've got nothing to lose. Guy. That's right. That's right. It might, it might just uh, blow open a door. Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you how we've modified it. Cause I, I, I got the same response from officers many, as I've been doing it 30 years, many years ago. And so I really started thinking about it. And again, I, I think anything that I promote that's positive, that works, God deserves all the glory for it. Cause I'm just not that smart. Um, <laughs> But what we have clients do now instead is write a letter to that person. And like for me, I've been writing a letter to my dad since he died when, uh, well, years later, but he died when I was 28. But it's also a way of my staying connected to him throughout my life. You know, yeah. he, he knew my daughter, but he didn't know my son. So it was a way of me staying connected to him. Um, I'll start my letter to Chris Farrar, our our co-host on the podcast that was murdered in the line of duty over a year ago. Um, that's my next letter. Uh, and I just tell them, buy a notebook. And you write and write and write. And when you and it's not for anybody to ever read. Uh, it doesn't have to be grammatically correct. or it, it. A lot of my writing, sometimes I can't even read. It's not even legible, which is fine. Um, but it's a way of emptying the psychological garbage can. And you can do it to people you're angry with also. Um, that eventually you'll be finished with that letter and then one day you burn it. Um, but, you know, for you with your dad, even now to be able to stay connected to him by writing to him about the things that are continuing to go on, the good things in your life now that came from the bad, it's a great tool. Tom looked at me like I was nuts when I told him <laughs> he had to write to a little boy that he had to deal with that was killed. He was run over by a box truck. And uh, wound up having to write a letter to 
that little boy's mother also. Um, they look at me like I'm crazy. Yeah, but, I was like, you want me to do what? Yeah. And, uh, but it's amazing when, you know, it's, I call it, it's your day in court. People talk about they just want their day in court. They don't talk about the outcome. But that's basically right. what it is. It's your opportunity to voice and share and express things to someone who's no longer there or that is someone that would never be able to give you back what you needed anyway. Yeah. And it has incredibly healing, incredible yes. healing power. Right. It allows you to move on from it Yes. Uh, in, a, in a way. And so it was definitely something that helped me, but you know, um, we did several months of, of counseling and it was hard. It was hard It is because I'd been such a hurtful person for so long. And this was just like the icing on the cake, you know? So, uh, you know, my wife is an amazing woman um, and I don't deserve her at all. Uh, and I don't deserve her grace, but, but I have it. And so we, um, the happy ending to this story is that, you know, I got to keep my job. Um, I was disciplined very heavily, but I got to keep my job and I was thankful for that. Sure. Um, and my wife and I, uh, so we hit crisis mode when she, she found out about everything in August of 15, 2015. And my son, Zachariah was born in November of 2016. Uh, and so that's how quickly, uh, redemption, restoration and, and forgiveness can happen. Yes. Um, and he's, he's, uh, about to turn six this year. And then we also have, um, our daughter hope who was born, uh, in 2020. So she just turned two, uh, about a week ago. And so we now have three children. We have Anna, Zachariah and hope. And, um, we're just, uh, finally living the life that we were supposed to live. Uh, we're finally able to live in a place of healing. And, you know, we, uh, when I was, I, I watched the end of the movie again this morning. Um, and the part at the end where it says, now you're helping officers, uh, try to heal from trauma and stuff like that. And, you know, our whole thing here at under the shield also is about this whole concept is about there's healing and helping when you can take the bad. And we know God says in the Bible, he uses all things for good. He doesn't say he uses good things for good. He uses all things. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes when your suffering can lead to helping someone else not suffer, um, at, at least not at the level you did, there's healing in you for that. There, It gives almost value to the bad things that happen because now you the only way you can use them for good is to help someone else not fall into that same pit. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I, there's another, uh, uh, place in the Bible that that's a little bit similar to that in that, um, when, you know, we all know the story of Joseph and, uh, how he was sold in slavery and thrown in the pit right. by his brothers. Yep. Um, and, uh, then he ends up becoming number two in command, uh, in the entire <laughs> Egypt. Right. So, sure. Uh, and then when they reunite and they finally realize who he is and they're having their, their moment, uh, of, of forgiveness and, and all that, Joseph says, you know, uh, the enemy meant this for evil, mm -hmm. uh, but God meant it for good, Absolutely. you know? And so you have to, to look at, at things in that perspective and, and try to see the good in it for sure, because there, there can be good in every, everything, every Absolutely. bad thing you can find good in it. And, um, so we're just, we do try to help others. Um, we try to, um, you know, share our experience. That's why the book was born. That's why the movie was born. And, uh, we, uh, you know, there's so many stories I could tell you about, about people coming to me behind the scenes. It's always <laughs> behind the scenes, Sure. but people are starting to get bolder about, you know, their struggle and, right. um, but so many, uh, cops have come to me and, and other first responders, you know, dispatchers, and I don't want to ever exclude them because they have the same stuff. Absolutely. Um, yep. <laughs> and uh, just saying like, Hey, like reading your story is like reading my story because there's like, and that just, that is just affirmation. You're not alone. You know, if you're struggling today, like you're not alone. That's the biggest lie the enemy holds over us yes. is that we're, the only one right. so called the, the fallacy of uniqueness, you know, that we're yes. somehow the only one in this whole world <laughs> right. is struggling just like this, right. you know, it's just a total, 
total lie. So, yes. you know, if you can have the courage, because it does take courage yeah. to yes. face this stuff, you can have the courage to face it and start your healing journey. Sure. Um, those, those first steps are the hardest, but it's so, so worth it because one day you can live free. Absolutely. You know what I find pretty amazing? Like I've been going around doing a lot of teaching with Susan lately. And when I open up and become vulnerable during those classes, it's amazing how that response that now these officers are like, and I think that's, you know, they get that aha moment where I'm not the only one, you know? Yeah. I may not be experiencing exactly what, you know, they did, but it allows them to start talking. And Well, they also realize too, that they, they realize they don't lose respect for Tom. Right. And and we have another officer who's a combat Marine, Mark Valenzuela, retired from Phoenix now, who was ambushed and um, shot and killed the guy. He tells his story, and it's not about his shooting. It's about the aftermath of it and everything he went through for the year. It, like you, he was rushing to all hot calls with, and he was advising on all calls. Right. He, he didn't need backup. He was going to handle this kind of thing. And um, I think when officers can look at, at officers like Tom and, and Mark and go, I'm not losing respect for them because they're being vulnerable about what went on with them. And I can relate to some of the things they're talking about. They begin to realize it, it's not this deep, dark secret that everybody is going through something. You, you can't deal with the things you are exposed to and that we expect y'all to fix and not have some kind of fallout from it. You're right. human beings who hurt. You know, I said, you. we laugh about it under the shield. There are three characteristics of people going to law enforcement. You have attention deficit disorder or ADHD. You're adrenaline junkies and you're caregivers. Well, the caregiver comes in conflict with the other two quite often because you don't like to be bored out here. <laughs> and um, so it, it all ties together. But that caregiver part of it, is the one that gets damaged because y'all feel responsible when you can't fix everybody's problems. Right. We're supposed, you're yep. supposed to. And that's true. That's, that's where faith can help is uh, yep. giving it over to that higher power. Yes. Yeah. And so again, you know, having officers like yourself who will stand up and say, yeah, I messed up. It doesn't make you a bad person. It means we haven't done the right training on the front end and throughout the career to explain the stuff that's going on, which is what we're out trying to do now, uh, which is a hard battle. It, it's amazing at how departments don't want this training. It, it's pretty sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we keep plugging away and pushing at it because we can do a better job on the front end and then throughout the career rather than waiting till people fall in the ditch and have three divorces and two DUIs and lose a career or whatever um, that there is help and there's a way to do that. And thanks to people like yourself and Tom and others, uh, you know, we're, we're beginning to make a dent in some of this stuff. Yeah. That's what I hope and pray. I, I think that the winds of change are starting to blow very yeah. slowly. It's still a very much an uphill battle. Yes. Uh, but there's, so there's two things I wanted to quickly mention. One is, uh, now I, uh, from the ground up, I, I, uh, using, uh, a book called by Dr. Stephanie Kahn called uh, Increasing Resilience in Police. Mm -hmm. I, I made a course. Um, it's an eight-hour all-day class, mm -hmm. uh, which is exhausting to teach. But um, <laughs> Tell me about but it. I, I, I teach a class at, at our uh, regional academy now for, mm -hmm. for officers, dispatchers, uh, even and jail officers um, on mental wellness, resilience, and suicide prevention. So um, and they also are addressing it in our local academy with the new recruits that that the one that I teach is for veterans. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's good to see that is uh, that is happening, but we didn't have anything prior to that. So right. um, but I do start to I am starting to see it in different places. Sure. Um, and, and so I think that we just got to keep fighting the good fight. Yep. Um, and just the other thing real quick I wanted to mention is that uh, I think that, you know, you mentioned your. Uh, your speaker that um, has been in a, in a shooting yes, um, and the aftermath of it. Yep. And so I, I think it's important to also mention that, that there's a lot of people struggling out there that haven't ever been involved in a shooting yes. that yes. Have, haven't ever been involved in something that like a major, major right. incident like that. Yep. Uh, you know, that's a big, big trauma, you know, yes. and then there's, 
and there's cumulative trauma, right? Yes. Vicarious trauma. So I think that it's almost like uh, sometimes we we are looking for an excuse to point it to, like yep. I'm screwed up because of this, right? Right? Like um, I'm screwed up because of this event. Sure. And it doesn't always work like that. Like exactly. we all respond to trauma differently. It has a lot to do with how you were raised. Yep. Um, it has to do with what you believe. It has to do with childhood trauma, it, lots of different things, right? Sure. So just know that even if you haven't had a major event in your right. life and you're struggling, like that's okay. That's, that's right. you're not alone. See, and that's you why know, I, I tell, never, that's why I tell my story because I've never been involved in a shooting. Yeah. Tom's is the cumulative right. side, but you know, there you go. when yeah, you yeah. do 22 years of accident reconstruction yep, and you deal with that death all the time over and over and over and over again, you yeah. know, when it started affecting me, I didn't realize what it was that was affecting me. Right. And so that's why I like telling my story um, for the officers that, you know, they've, it's cumulative for them, all the stuff that they've dealt with and seen. It doesn't have to be right. just a shooting, you know, that well, causes Well, and to be issues. honest. That's excellent. What we have found is the shooting is never the issue. In Mar and that's why Mark's story is so important, too. And he uses my uh, psychological garbage can example, too, because his really started filling up. And he was angry as a child because of his parents' divorce. And then he went to the Marine Corps, and as he says, Marines like you angry. <laughs> and, and so he Sorry. comes out of that, and and he said, and it wasn't the shooting that was Mark's problem. It was. It turned out when he came to me, the first thing I said to him after all these psychologists and people had seen him, he walked in my office, and I said, Mark, you want me to tell you what your problem is? And he goes, what? And I said, the fact that you couldn't save Mercy Cordova. A woman was executed before he got there. And the tears started, and he goes, you're the first person to say that to me. And that was that problem solver I should have been able to. Not that I shot and killed somebody. Y'all are trained to do that. I hope nobody comes out of an academy thinking they'll never have right. to. You don't come out going, hot damn, can't wait. Right. But, you know, it's the, it's the concept of you're taught that that's a possibility and how to, when to, where to, why to. But nobody talks about the aftermath of feeling responsible for the innocent people that got hurt or killed prior to that. And that right. was Mark's whole issue. And so his, like I said, his talk is he, he shows his body cam, but it's 11 seconds of hardly anything. But it, the, the whole important part to it is how Mark's garbage can started filling up as a kid. And these things just compounded it. And so you're absolutely right. Rarely do we ever, and we, I, I go out on all shootings from Maricopa County Sheriff's Department here. The shootings aren't the issue. It's the other stuff that you take ownership of and feel responsible for. And it, you know, we talk about um, traumatic brain injury in two types, you know, but what y'all really suffer from is the psychological traumatic brain injury. And right. it is the day to day, and it's the asking you to do things that no human being really should have to do or be exposed to, and that's why your story is so important. Again, because you're you're showing the reality of what I would venture to say the majority of law enforcement officers experience at some level in their careers, or they leave it. And yeah. it's it we got to do a better job from the mental wellness standpoint. And again, at Under the Shield, we believe in a three-tiered approach, peer support, stress coaches, and licensed mental health. And the stress coaches come in and that people can talk to us anonymously um, and never have to give us their name or their agency or any of those things. And we don't refer them out to anybody else unless we need documentation for FMLA, industrial workman's comp, or medical retirements. And other than that, they can text us they can call us they can zoom with us they can come into the office whatever um because we've got to open up more avenues than just peer support and licensed if people are going to reach out for help and we were encouraged we picked up some major contracts out here in arizona from the professional liability insurance carriers and they want they had been looking for three years for a program that would provide anonymous help that's what they wanted. We'd never seen it. I thought some cop was setting me up as a joke, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, and they said it was because the licensed people they were using were developing their own PTSD from listening to it. 
And so they wanted something different. And we happened to be right here in Arizona. They didn't even know it when they called us. But it, we got to bring more stuff to the table. Right. It's not about eliminating anything. It's about bringing additional things. And it's going to take people like you, Johnson. Yes. You know, bringing your story to life like you did in the book and in the movie. I mean, my hat's off to you for yeah. being that vulnerable and sharing that. With and you're everyone. still working. And it exactly. shows you can save right. your career if you get help. Yeah. And doing the, yeah. the training that you talked about, your eight-hour yes. class. I mean, that's just continuing to put it out there. Yes. You know, we that's like to... We almost need to bombard the officers with this stuff so that they realize this is okay. Sure. I can sure. get help. And feel free to share our information at Under the Shield. Um, you know, we've got the crisis line that they can call, and it's never an issue um, with regards to we don't even have their phone number when they call us. Um, but, you know, it's going to be sharing. We'll be sharing your story and encouraging people to read your book and watch the movie and you know, if we could all team up together rather than everybody being territorial and fighting <laughs> for some kind of jurisdiction on this stuff, you know, it's crazy. Um, but, and we do a, a, our trainings, we include spouses because we think they're the first line of defense to see the early warning signs. And then we do a supervisor training also. Um, but we got to come at this from a different approach than what we've done for the last 30 years. Oh, yeah, t totally agree. So, uh, can I? Can we talk about where you can see the movie for free right absolutely, now? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> All right, so you can get the uh, the book uh, and the, the movie have the same cover art. Um, Break Every Chain is the title of both the book and the movie. You have the book on the Amazon anywhere you anywhere you can, uh, you can find online books, um, and it's available in paperback. It's also Audible. That's what I was wanting to know. I need Audible because I am in the car more than I'm sitting reading. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you can get it on Audible and then um, and then Kindle, of course. But uh, the movie is right now. It's on Amazon Prime for free yep. for Prime members. Yep. It's on uh, Tubi for free. Of course, there's ads with that, but um, it's on Tubi right now. It's on um, it's on YouTube, free with ads. Okay. So you just Google "Break Every Chain" or go to YouTube and do "Break Every Chain Movie," okay. and it'll come right up. So you can watch it free on YouTube, um, and it's on Vudu. Uh, free with ads right now as well so you can you can easily watch it check it out on streaming if you'd like to see it um yeah i think you can you can also order it on dvd on amazon if you like dvds also um, but i just wanted to <laughs> well and i want to ask the audible do you read it um you know i thought about it i thought about doing it where i read it mm -hmm. and uh the reason i did not is i quote my wife saying i hate you um, so I don't know that I could, I could pull that off. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I actually, uh, a family friend, uh, that's has over 30 years in radio ended up doing, um, okay. the audible book for me. Okay. Yeah. So, right. well, we will certainly share that. And we've got a bunch of trainings coming up yes. with border patrol and all over the state of Arizona and other places. And so we will share all that and we'll be sharing this podcast on all of our social media, we hope uh, that you'll share it also um, and encourage people to come to Under the Shield Fight in Progress to hear your podcast and others that we have Absolutely. on here. I think this is episode 77 or something. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, again, who knows. But, um, <laughs> uh, but we uh, can't thank you enough for what you're doing for law enforcement right. and for the mental wellness of our first responders and uh for agreeing to be on the podcast. I'm sure we'll probably have you back on again at some point in the future. And like I said, we'll talk about a collaborative yeah. work together somehow. And, uh, you know, maybe we can get y'all out West, certainly not during the summer months. <laughs> we'll, we'll make sure it's a pleasant time of year <laughs> to come go. out here. <laughs> the, and, the movie actually premiered uh, in Tempe, oh, uh, just, just North of Phoenix. Yeah, so, yeah that's you know. the city I worked in. That's the PD. Yeah, that's I who for. Tom worked for. So ah, okay. Yeah, so yeah, awesome. Beautiful. Yep. Well, we again, we thank you for taking the time to be on here and share your thank story you. again, and and uh, we'll certainly be promoting it. And for anyone out there listening, again, you can reach under the shield any of our stress coaches um, at eight five five eight eight nine two three four eight. My cell number is three three four three two four. 
480-861-3570. And my cell phone number is 480-861-6574. And we just want to thank all the first responders out there for all the sacrifices they make. We have to include families, having been there, done that for 20 years. The families make tremendous sacrifices. And we're just praying that everyone has a very safe, healthy, and happy 4th of July weekend as we close this podcast out. And we'll be coming to you from the Chris Ferrara Podcast Studio with our next episode. And uh, again, just God bless you. God bless your families and this great nation that we live in. We're here if you need us for anything 24-7, 365. We promise you will remain anonymous. Your departments, no one will ever know that you call us or reach out to us. And uh, again, Jonathan, thank you. Have a very blessed 4th of July weekend. Hope you're not having to work like so many will be. Um, I, I actually do have to work, but that's okay. I'm just so thankful to be on here with you guys. Thanks for all that you're doing at Under the Shield. Well, thank you so much. Yes. Take care, and I'm sure we'll be in touch soon. Thanks again, Jonathan, and congratulations on a great book and, and movie. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.